From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society, a podcast that celebrates the big ideas and great thinkers who have shaped our world. I'm your host, Patrick Spiro, and on today's episode, we'll talk to Kenneth Pruitt, the Carnegie Professor of Public Affairs at the School of International and Public Affairs and Director of the Future of Scholarly Knowledge at Columbia University. From 1998 to 2001, Dr. Pruitt was the Director of the United States Census Bureau, and in November 2018, he gave a talk at the APS meeting titled, Can the Census Be Gerrymandered? With the 2020 Census Upon Us, in this episode, we'll talk about the history of the census, how it actually functions, and why it's so important. Ken, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I thought we'd just maybe just start with a very simple question, and that's, what is the census, and why does it matter? It's fairly simple. It's a count, of course, a bunch of numbers. The more categories you have, the more numbers you have, of course. We started the census with almost no uh, development of a questionnaire, very straightforward, uh, with one important exception. Uh, That important exception, uh, the 1790 census, was to count the uh, slave population at a 0.6 level. That was a big debate, and we think we're certain that without that that negotiated agreement between the North and the South, we would not have had a union. Other than that, the census is pretty straightforward. How many people live in this house? What are their genders? Little bit of what are their ages, but nothing else. It's not about tax aid, not about how many taxes they pay or even how much land they owned and so forth. The other thing to know about the first census is that there have been colonial censuses and the colonial censuses obviously run out of London in effect were to exploit resources and exploit labor. That is, it was a tool of the powerful. And what the founders did was to say, let's take this census and turn it into a tool for the powerless. In effect, if you think about the numbers, even certainly those today, much, much richer set of data. But if you think about even the earliest numbers, it's it's a way to hold the government account to account. If you got a picture of your country and where it's going and you don't like it, and you've also got the vote, then that's a justification for the census really being part of the, in effect, the infrastructure of the democracy. Uh, We would not have had a a representative democracy without the census. So I never thought about it as a tool for the powerless. Could you talk a little bit more about how the census today can also be a tool for the powerless as well as historically? To, To start with the recent discussion we've been having here in the country about whether to put a citizenship question on to uh, this year's census. But what came out of that in my mind was that the right to be represented is more fundamental than the right to vote. That is, you're going to count everyone, babies, elderly. The, The census said everyone in the country, and it had nothing to do with citizenship. It was just living here and being here and working here and raising a family here. Everyone in the country is critical to count so that we can allocate the, uh, the house seats uh, proportionate to the population size of the state. And that 
idea of proportionality tracks through the entire thing. It certainly tracks through the proportionality in certain things like social justice. We define social justice and racial fairness by proportionality and gender fairness. We sort of compare the number of people who happen to get into the Ivy Leagues by race or by gender in the 1920s or the 1850s and say, my gosh, we don't have any men here. We don't have any women here. We only have women here. Something's wrong with this picture. So anything that counts the numbers of a, of a category that matters, and of course what matters is itself a debatable argument. And so back to this to the slavery count in, in, in 1790, the South recognized that it would be easily outvoted if it didn't include the slaves in its count. Now, that did not mean the slaves are going to vote, of course, or have citizenship or anything like it. But the South said, but we're here, we have to build roads, we have to build infrastructure, and there are this many of us here, and we want that. So the debate, and the North said, don't be silly, we're not going to count the slaves who, don't, who can't vote or don't belong to, you don't allow into our, into our society, in our polity. And so the compromise was 0.6, and that, that stayed in place until after the Civil War, of course, and then the slaves were counted as whole people. So the proportionality uh, allowed the South, if you look at the presidents in the early years of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the country, they were all from the South. They were Virginians. They weren't Massachusetts. That was the two states kind of fighting it out. And that's true on the Supreme Court. Uh, in effect, there was the, the slave count allowed the North and South to be roughly equal in terms of both political power, even though the South was a much smaller population size than, than, and that continued to be the case as more and more immigrants, of course, came and built factories and so forth in the, in the North. So keep in mind the idea of proportionality, because it will float through any serious discussion. And the proportionality is what gave the power to the people in effect. So when we have Voting Rights Act today, we're making sure that everyone gets to vote who should be able to vote, and we're doing that by comparing the number of, of, of people who actually, you know, gerrymandering and other ways kind of voter suppression in some states, we're seeing it, or you don't count the felons in some states for purposes of, of apportionment. Well, the Florida, by the way, if the felons, the ex-felons had voted in the uh, Gore-Bush election, Gore would be president. Um, and we know that number. And so that's a way to try to hold the country account. Doesn't always work that way, but that's the idea of accountability on the basis of a picture of our society, who's ahead, who's behind, who's getting educated, who has housing, uh, who, who's wealthy, who's not. The whole picture of the country is given to us by the census. So going back in time in which, you know, this census in the colonial period, as you described, it was about power and about extraction and control of an empire, largely from afar, London. And that one of the things that happened in the early Republic was that it, it gave more power to the to the people. It kind of was a democratizing uh, effect. So I didn't know if any of the leaders of the, the day recognized what they were doing. I know some APS members were probably involved in the censuses. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was the president of both the APS and the United States at the same time during a census, uh, Madison uh, as well. So you know, what were their, do you have any insight on what their thinking about the census was? Well, let me start with the father of the country, with George Washington. George Washington got the census count. 
and it was about 3.9 million. And George Washington said, that can't be right. I know there are, it, he didn't use the word undercount, which we now use it. We know about an undercount and overcount. And George Washington said, I, I know there are more of us here, and it's really important that we have a full count. So he turned Jefferson loose to make an estimate. Jefferson estimated there was a population of roughly 4.1 million. Now, why did Washington care? Washington cared because the difference between 3.9 and 4.1, more than 4 million sounded a lot more persuasive and, and important than a less than 4 million. So and his eye was actually on international his, his, ideas. His, his eye was on telling the, the Europeans, especially um, uh, the British, don't come back with your soldiers because there are a lot of us and we're growing. That was the, he, won, he used it as a statement of national defense. Now, Jefferson, who did all of this complicated work to sort of make that estimate, and, and retrospectively, we can see that he was really right, because we had then later formal account, uh, better accounts of, under, uh, of the undercount. It's always been fairly steady, somewhere 3 to 4% and so forth. And that's what that number represented, that 3.9 to 4.1. But Jefferson had a different goal in mind. One of the arguments going on right after the, uh, the establishment of the country, after 1787, um, there was an argument of the leadership of the country about the value of colonizing the West and leaving only 13 states which would own together the rest of the country. And of course that violated Jefferson's fundamental idea. And he wanted every new state to come in when it was time for it so that they would be free and independent states. And in 1790, because he had the control that he could do this. He didn't get permission, but he he went and counted the Appalachians. And don't forget, in 1793, we added the 14th state, Kentucky. And then a year later, we added Tennessee. And once he had done that, it, that, that argument was over. It was clear as we moved westward, uh, we were going to include the new states and so forth as independent states. So he won his battle for really the soul of the country. Madison, the utilitarian Madison, he also had a goal. He asked in 1790 to put a question on the census. Uh, the Congress was controlling the questionnaire itself. This is 1790? In 1790, okay, okay. he said we ought to ask a question on occupation. Pretty simple question. You know, are you a farmer? Are you a manufacturer? Are you commercial? And the Congress turning, turned him down and said, oh, that's, that's just numbers for people to write books with. It's useless. We don't need to know anything about that. And besides, somebody could be more than one of those things. Well, of course, you could account it that way and so forth. So, so moder Madison did not get his way. However, two censuses later, they were begging to put this on the census. We're now at, at, at 1810 yeah, when the country is yeah, and he's president and we're going to grow this country. And so in effect, Madison recognized that the census could be the foundation of what we today would call a national statistical system. And with that simple question, Jefferson, who, who was running the 1800 census, once again went with the same request with more argument behind it, to, and they turned him down as well. But by 1810, everybody said, well, of course, we want more data about the country and, and so forth and so on. 
So all three of our great, these three great founders had their own achievement in mind and their own goal in mind. Uh, Jefferson to make sure the country had the fundamental democratic principle of free and equal states going all the way to the, the Pacific Ocean. General uh, Washington had a concern about protecting the, the national borders, the defense of the country. And Madison had, a, how do we understand even more about our country? We're going out there and knocking on doors uh, and asking people, why don't we ask them a few more questions? And by the 1930s and uh, 1830s and 40s, the census is up in 34, 50 questions. Uh, it became a really big data collection operation. Well, and the, the Madison story brings up a question I, I wanted to ask, which is, what is the role between the census as a uh, bureau of the federal government and the other branches of government, uh, the executive, the judicial, but especially Congress? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the census, by the way, is in the sixth census of the Constitution. Uh, that is, it, it's that important. It's the, only, it's the only instruction to the government what it had to do that is in the Constitution. Obviously, we did all kinds of things. Uh, we created uh, the federal marshals. They then did the census, a matter of fact. But, but the census was so critical to the foundation of the country that it's Article One, Section 2. Uh, and I say, the sixth census you read in the U.S. census is there shall be a thing. Now, the phrase in there is, as Congress shall direct. So Congress owned the census. Many years later, Congress devolves that ownership to the executive branch, although it technically the census could be undone by the, by the Congress and you could have a fight, but now you would take it to the Supreme Court and so forth. But the, the building over time of a very rich uh, federal statistical system uh, starts with a census, and the census is the only game in town until about the 1880s, when we first have a Bureau of Labor Statistics, which was started in Massachusetts, and not until the 1900s did it migrate to the federal government. And once the Bureau of Labor Statistics exists, you can begin to have bureaus of health statistics, transportation statistics. So today, we have 15 formal uh, data collection features of the national, what I, I call the nation's national information platform, but another 40 or 50 or even 60 by some counts statistical programs, like a VA program for health and education and labor and economics are all programs. But then in addition to these programs uh, that is formal um, entities, in the, in the executive branch. But in addition to them, you have them scattered across the country, all kinds of, or across the uh, administration. So the, the size of our national statistical system hangs on the census. Let me make that technical point yeah. because it will be important uh, that people understand this. Not until the 1930s did we understand sample surveys and we introduced sample surveys. And the Census Bureau itself was part of the creation of the sample survey. And, and then, I'm sorry, but uh, so this, uh Innovation, was it coming from academics? Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Statisticians or uh, demographers or... You know. Exactly. Okay. I mean, all yeah. of the above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, if you go back, there was, uh, there was some battles going on about the census in the, 19, in the 1850s and 60s. And that's the period the American Statistical Association formed itself in order to give advice uh, to the census people. There's no Census Bureau until 1904. Each 
in, in all the censuses across um, the 18th century, you put together a team that Congress did, put together a team, they would go out and do the census, they bring the numbers back in. Uh, and it took longer and longer because the country's growing and so forth and so on. But you didn't then institutionalize it. You started again four or five years later to get ready for the next dec decadal census. We've never failed to have a decadal census. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's one odd oddity here. And I'll, the 1920 census has the oddity that it was not used to apportion the population. The 1920 census showed that the population, for the first time, had moved to be a, a majority rural nation to a majority urban nation. And the congressmen were still from the rural states, conservative states, Midwestern states, as they are today. Um, but where was all of this new urbanness? This new urbanness is the industrial cities of New York and of, of, of Boston and uh, Pittsburgh Chicago. and Chicago and so forth. And don't forget 1920, Red Scare. Yeah. These were these were risky people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these were, uh, you know, aliens. Uh, you had the, the anti-immigrant uh, move already going on, of course. So the numbers came in in 1920, um, the apportionment count, and the Congress said, well, we don't know, whatever, maybe this wasn't such a good census. They just stonewalled it. So we did not reapportion in 1920. That's the only what I would call failed census we've ever taken. It wasn't a failure of the Census Bureau. It was a failure of the Congress to do what it was obligated to do. And Has anybody looked to see if it had been used uh, to proportion represent? Oh, yeah. Out, oh, yeah. yeah. 11 seats would have gone to the northeastern states okay. and uh and and that would have easily made the that that a more dominant part of our uh, of our uh, legal and legal political system and so forth so one of the things that keep in mind about the census and this is complicated to get people to understand this it's critically important that the census itself is conducted without any partisan manipulation the numbers are political they're supposed to be political. And if people use, if different interests use those numbers in different ways in order to gain partisan advantage, so be it. As long as the numbers themselves were protected from manipulation. And so the 1920 census that I just described, the numbers came across quite cleanly as, as best we could do a census in the 1920s. No one argued they weren't any good. They were used for other purposes of, of, of economics and, and health and so forth that were starting to be into the census by then, but they just weren't used to a portion. Okay, that was a political decision, but the, the, the trend lines, for example, between the census is one long trend line, of course, in 1790 to today, the trend lines kept the 1920 data in them, so we know what was going on in the country. But, but they just couldn't stomach the idea of sending all of these 11 seats up to these commie countries in uh, commie cities in the, in the Northeast. In your APS meeting talk back in 2018, you reflected on your own time as a census director in 1998 to 2001 and how you experienced the uh, politicalization firsthand. So I asked myself when I became Census Bureau director, there's a lot of talk in the air about political interference in the census. And so I said, well, what is it? What, is, what, is, what would constitute political interference in the census? Which in a sense was asking myself the question, what would I be told to do that I would have to resign for? That's my only power. Uh, it's the Watergate phenomenon, of course. Uh, the only thing you can do is walk. What is the line between congressional oversight 
and political interference. Wrote a little article about it, and this is what I said. The politically motivated suppression of an agency's responsibility to offer its best judgment on how to most accurately and reliably measure a given phenomenon. The politically motivated decision to prevent an agency from using state-of-the-art science. Finally, the politically motivated insistence on pre-clearance of a major statistical product that is based on state-of-the-art science. In other words, anything that interfered with the census's ability to count everyone once, only once, and in the right place, I would interpret as political interference. So I didn't know if you could talk a little bit more about how the census has been politicized in our own lifetime and also currently uh, what the big kind of political dilemmas uh, or uh, political areas of debate are. The huge issues that's in play now, and, and there's a version of it was in play in, in, in 2000, is whether you should allow non-citizens and especially, of course, undocumented aliens to be used in the apportionment count. And uh, there's a very strong move by a conservative uh, set of interest to say no one should count in terms of how many seats and electoral college votes go to the 50 states. And that's a very political decision. Now, you could still count everybody and have that be a political decision, and that's what would happen. It would go to the Supreme Court, and we would see what happens. It's already gone to the Supreme Court, and that's why the Supreme Court has disagreed with it. Think that, no, you have to count everybody, because that's what the Constitution seems to say. But there is an argument that, in terms of how you interpret certain words in the, in the Constitution, that, no, uh, you don't have to do that. And uh, we now have a, a, an unusually conservative court. And I think all bets are off. And whether you could now take the, certainly the not undocumented, but of course, which the conservatives think are here living freely and so forth and so on and chewing up money, that's simply, we know we have data that's not true from the census and other statistical systems. We have evidence of, of these are, for the most part, very hardworking people, frightened to death, of course, but hardworking people and trying to raise their kids and uh, et cetera. Um, if you don't count the illegals, they live someplace. Their kids are going to show up at school. And you say, well, how will we get so many kids suddenly? We don't, that was not the Census Bureau told us that. They didn't tell us that. And so you're Houston and you suddenly find you've got 10 or 15% more children than you thought you had. You gotta, you're going to teach them? You're gonna, what are you going to do with them? And so the actual count in terms of traffic patterns, in terms of employment uh, availability, in terms of the, the commercial sector needs a real count of everybody, whether they're here illegal or not. This is not a case for illegality or undocumented. It's just a fact. And certainly if they're citizens, and in effect, for our, alien, for our felons, we take citizenship away from them in effect. Florida just gave it back. They're now going to include the, non, the people who've paid their pay their dues uh, by being in prison for 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, or whatever the crime was. No one's saying, okay, if they're criminals, we ought to uh, incarcerate them. But when they paid their, why aren't they then citizens again? So that's a very partisan issue. So the key partisan issue is how do you restrict the apportionment count to benefit your state and a blue state or a red state? And, in, in federal representation. And federal representation. And then within the state, when you start gerrymandering uh, the House seats, 
if you're not counting the, uh, the, the undocumented or the non-citizens, you can now gerrymander it in a way that will really give you a, a control over state legislatures uh, more than if you have to count everybody. We count everyone, that is, there's no undercount, only once, no overcount, and in the right place in order to portion. Now, how in the world could something so simple as that become partisan? To go back to 2000, we have been pressed, the Census Bureau have been pressed, to figure out a way, and we came up with what was called dual system estimation, which was a statistical procedure where you would do the census and then you would go out and, and, and count a certain number of people, a very large number of people in all of the entire country, and compare that with the number you had gotten in the first census and adjust it. We use the word adjustment. And we thought statistically we would know how to do this. The reason that was so critical is because we now had a measure of the undercount. The first measure of the undercount happened in 1942. We had done the census in 1940, and then we had an alternative census, unexpectedly. Every male between the ages of 18 and 34 who had to sign up for the draft. And we compared those two numbers, and the thing we found is we had a, an undercount of about 4%, but it was, dis, it was differential. It was much higher for African Americans than for the white population. And so we call that the differential undercount. And the differential undercount is, in effect, an indicator of social injustice. Uh, the people being left out of the census are more likely to be marginal to the society. Uh, the Native Indian population, the African population, then more gradually the immigrant population, and so forth and so on. Seven percent of the U.S. residents are non-citizens. Fourteen percent of the, all U.S. residents live in a household with at least one non-citizen. 45% of Hispanics and Asians live in a household with at least one non... 45% of these two big population groups uh, have a non-citizen uh, in the household. So the Census Bureau went to work trying to fix that problem. And in, in 2000, the fix was going to be dual system estimation. That went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled it um, inadmissible because the word in the Constitution is enumeration. And the, since, and the Supreme Court decided that enumeration meant everybody being contacted and put into the census. Of course, we don't do that. We, we do all kinds of things to put people into the census without finding them all. We do uh, statistical procedures that allow us to adjust. So we know we get a reasonably good count. And it turned out, after the 2000 census, I was then gone because the, uh, uh, President Bush had come, and I'm a Democrat, so I'm out, and there's a new... Uh, director. But there was a legitimate statistical debate going on about whether you could pull off this dual system estimation. And the Census Bureau itself, in looking at the numbers uh, very carefully, uh, came to the conclusion it, it had too much error in it and they didn't want to use it. For one thing, other things came along, statistical processes that worked just as well. Okay. We're now actually fairly careful. Yeah. We now estimate based upon what we call a hot deck procedure. You can go to a neighborhood and you can say, the neighborhood is, is we counted most everybody, but we're pretty sure there's another 7 or 8% we didn't count. But we know what they're likely to be because they're likely to be their neighbors. If, if, if there are tenement houses, tenement houses and five or six people living in every unit, 
then lo and behold, we'll say there's five or six units if they're African American or Asians, and and you you have all it's more complicated than this, but you have real good estimates. You ask neighbors, and increasingly you go to administrative records. Mm. The huge difference between previous censuses and the one in 2020 is to sort of get that last few percent. We will make heavy use of administrative records. Mm of SSA records and IRS records and education records and so forth. And we'll get rid of a lot of the duplicates. We, we have an overcount. Uh, the overcount is disproportionately white. And it's people who have two or three houses. And they don't know. They forget. Or somebody fills it out of one place and somebody fills it out another. One of the anecdotes from my census in 2000, my mother, then in her late 80s, was moving on April 1st. She actually moved that day on census day. So... She called me and she said, oh, she was so pleased she was going to help me have a better census because she had one from the house she moved out of and the house she moved into. She sent them both in. <laughs> I said, thanks, mom. But <laughs> we got to go find right, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't do duplicates. Yeah, yeah. And you have duplicates. Kids in college get counted uh, in, in by the universities, but then sometimes the parents think, "Oh, well, they're home all the time." And so, anyway, we have we have ways of finding those duplicates and trying to eliminate them, and the undercount and trying to uh, get it more or less correct. So, one of the big changes in 2020, as I understand it, is using online as a way of participating yeah. in the census. So, what does that mean? The in, most important basic thing to understand about the census from 1790 to, to, to today is that every census gets more difficult. It, the population is larger. There are more languages spoken in the United States. There's greater anxiety today, certainly much greater anxiety today about privacy and maybe not trusting the government. Every census is harder to count than the one before it. But every census adjusts to the fact that it's harder to count and invents new things. And so dual system estimation that I just mentioned was one of those things that didn't quite work, but uh, using neighbors and now using administrative records and using the Internet response rate. We expect about 60 percent of the population to get the you will get a form in the mail. And it will say, if you would like to use the net, your iPhone, whatever, and you can go to the library and do it, you can do it in lots of different ways, then we're making it easy for you. And that's an enormous cost saving of it not coming in by paper, coming in by electronic goods. It immediately goes into the coding system. And you're not sort of fiddling around with reading from all these pieces of paper and, and, and so forth. Um, if we don't meet that target, it's going to be a problem because then you got to go out and remail and knock on doors and use enumerators and so forth. If you get higher than that 60%, and of course, some parts of the country say, but it's not fair to us because after all, we're offline. Uh, uh, Native Indian reservations feeling particularly worried about that. The Census Bureau is paying attention all of the time to the groups that aren't being counted and trying to figure out how to count them. The thing about the Census Bureau, it really is a very, very dedicated group of specialists who are apartisan. They're there to get the job done. They believe deeply in it, and, and they, they come up with solutions. The Internet is clearly makes sense. It's the 21st century, for heaven's sakes. 
And if people can do that and get rid of it in two or three minutes, which you can, it's the blah, 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 and you're finished and it's gone. You'll forget it two days later when you took the census. So one of the big problems is people can't even remember that whether they did or did not answer the previous census and so forth. Um, a lot of our trend data actually counts the same families. Okay. And, and you can watch the family change its character. First, they don't have children, then they do have children, then the children go to school, and you're seeing this in the record, and then the parents uh, retire, and the children have jobs, and so studies of social mobility use trend data across. Uh, We're just doing that now for the first time, um, uh, but it's tremendously important to the social sciences telling us what's going on in our country in terms of upward mobility or downward mobility. Uh, and our movement, how many people move, sell their houses and move around, it's, that's very important for the housing industry. Uh, the people who use the census know how powerful it is. There are all these reasons this, the government chooses to do the census that aids them in so many different facets. Yeah. But you've talked about school, local schools. Uh, you've talked about uh, businesses. So who else uses the census and, and in what ways? Every major commercial player. Walmart doesn't want to know how many people are moving in and out of their, the, the towns, what the age are, what they're likely to need when they're going to school or not go to school. For heaven's sakes, Walmart is a huge, huge, has been historically a huge supporter of the census. Chambers of Commerce. In this particular census, because there's a lot of concern about it, and for reasons that I've already hinted at and we talked more about, there's much, much more state and local money going into the census today. The 2000 census, the one I directed, not because I directed it, um, all of this was in play before I get there. I get zero credit for what I'm about to, to mention. But the, it was the first census which used paid advertising. Previous censuses went to NPR and said, won't you mention us on you? And they said, sure. And so at two in the morning, they say, oh, don't forget the census is coming. And we were falling behind uh, in terms of, of the, the response rate. People forget it, they throw it away, they don't want to, can't be bothered, or whatever. And we're really falling behind, and so it, we had to turn that corner. And we went with what we called a paid advertising campaign and what we called partnerships. Uh, we had hundreds of partners, including chambers of commerce and school systems and so forth, helping us, in effect, do the count, talk the count up. We put form, we put uh, materials in every, every public school in the country and some private schools at three levels, primary, mid-school, and, and uh, upper reaches of the schooling system. Uh, and it, where the kids could play with it, become enumerators, go home and tell their parents about it. We do a lot of stuff. And the paid advertising campaign this year is, is it's on this, it's on a steep upward slope from 2000. Uh, that is the federal money, but the federal money is inadequate to actually do a good census this year, which means, uh, the, the city of New York City is spending $40 million. The state of New York is spending another $100 million, or no, another $60 million to bring the whole thing to 100 California is spending $110 or $15 million. Now, you say, that's great. It is great, except I want a fair census. Texas is spending nothing. Therefore, tex the Texans the school teachers, the chambers of commerce, the businesses, and so forth, are uh, getting together and creating their own units. And they will cooperate with the Census Bureau, and there will be all kinds of interaction and so forth in order to get it. Because if California does a great job, and New York does a great job, and Minnesota does a great job, or whatever, and other states don't, by definition, the monies that are going to be spent 
for the next 10 years are going to be taken from the states that have an undercount and given to the states that count everybody or even have an overcount. And that's unfair. The dollars, by the way, is now $1.5 trillion a year. Multiply that by 10 because the census numbers are used across the decade until we have another decennial. And you're talking really a huge amount of money that comes for veterans, for health, for transportation systems, for emergency relief, for schools. All of that money comes back to the states. In, in 2000, I had an advertisement um, that I loved, but they wouldn't let me use it. It was a picture of the census form and the IRS form. And under the IRS form, it said, this taketh away, and under the census, this giveth back. And, um, uh, uh, but in effect, that is true. That actually um, brings back to my mind the discussion about getting an accurate count and making sure that all people are counted, uh, even if they may not have voting privileges or be citizens uh, per se. So I just I'm putting on my historian's hat. It sounds like in the past, there's a fair amount of precedent in which the census did count individuals who were not full members of the society, that is citizens, voting citizens. So at what point did it become controversial? At what, at what point was a full count dropped? Um, it sounded like in the 1920 census that they were intending to count those who may not have had the right to vote, which is the reason why this the Congress chose not to uh, apportion representation based on these numbers. So at what point did that stop or at what point did it become controversial? Well, uh, let's go back to the Civil War. Um, we have, until the Civil War, the, the South puts the slave in at point two or point six of a person into all of their accounts to keep that number high. Then, after the war, and now they are citizens, what the South did was put them in at 100%, but, but then do voter suppression. And so the African population, don't forget, in the first, first census out, uh, in the 1870 census, you suddenly had a lot of African Americans voting and electing people. And then you had uh, a huge mess that got started uh, by the re-racializing the whole South. And so they didn't, they, they in effect had the vote taken away from them from, from 1870, 70, 80, yeah, uh, until 1960s and 70s. And so it isn't they weren't counted, but they were taken out of what mattered, that is the Electoral College and, and, and so forth. But... They were counted for purposes starting in roughly in the 1960s under Nixon uh, is when you begin to get a lot of this this flowback money, federal grant money coming back into the states. That money comes to the state at the state level. The state then allocates to different cities and, and, and different kinds of different units, different school systems. And uh, the Census Bureau has nothing to do with that. It just provides the number that Congress provides the, the number of the count. The dollars then get uh, obligated by the um, by the Congress, but at the state level, the state can distribute it. But there are a lot of rules and regulations about making sure that it's well done. Well, we're fairly certain that the, the, some of it's inefficient, but we're fairly certain those numbers are not corrupt. That is, the dollars that go back into this, the states and the communities are pretty clean. Obviously, there's mistakes that get made, and then some of it is like slush funds. You can use it however you want to, and so. The states love that, but that's not much. Most of it is very tailored, especially to the to the public health system. To answer your question, it starts as early as the 1920s, 
people wake up to the fact that if you can control the number of that are counted in your state, let alone then in the districts, that you can actually do a lot of um, things that you prefer to have done and do a lot of damage to things that you don't believe in. Uh, without giving them the details of that, but the, the conservatives want a, a smaller electorate, but they don't want to lose any of that money. It seems like there's a tension between maintaining political power, but also receiving the economic that, benefits absolutely. of the census. And often it's the political the wanting to control political power seems to win out. The, the whole politics polarization of the census has been accelerated by the polarization of the country. It's not something the census did or wants, but it itself has become a political tool. That wasn't even true really in 2000. The thing I mentioned, dual system estimation, was a pretty straightforward, we really do want to try to count everybody. The Republicans opposed it because, and with good reason, they said, we're not sure you can do it well. And they were right. And at the end of the day, we did not use it. One of the first things I did as a director, I was traveling, I was sent out starting to travel. And the director is really a cheerleader as much as anything else. Yeah. The people who really run it are running it. <laughs> You're being sent out and got out of the way and so forth. And this is a, a, a town in, in in Arizona, smallish place. And I don't know why they sent me there for some reason to signal something. And so I'm talking about it. And the, afterwards, the um, the mayor of the town says, well, he says, it's just great uh, to have you here, Dr. Brett. I want you to promise me that you will count at least 50,000 people in my town. And he said, I know we have 50,000 people. I said, I, I can't promise that. We will count as well as we can count. And we'll tell you whatever number uh, that we come up with. And then I said, well, why is that number important? Because I'm thinking proportionality all the time, not absolute numbers. And he says, because uh, we can't get a Walmart unless we're 50,000. And we want a Walmart. We, we're dependent upon on, on, uh, commercial taxations, taxation of, 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 of groceries and all of that sort of stuff that people buy more than property taxes. And we really need, uh, we really need uh, more commercial enterprises. And they will be here at that level. And they won't be here if it's not at that level. So every once in a while, there's a threshold number. Detroit, for a while, was under a threshold number, and they really were losing population. And if they got under a, a million, they lost a lot of benefits, and they were going to be under a million. It was pretty clear. And, and they, they finally were able to cut a deal with the legislature so they wouldn't be penalized. But mostly, the all of the benefits of the census are proportional. So we've talked a lot about uh, where the census has been and where it may be today, but... I don't know if you want to talk about where you see the census going in 2030, 2040. There are, um, there are two important things to say. There's a debate in this country right now about privacy. It spilled over into the census. It didn't start with the census. It started with uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter and, and the, the social media stuff and so forth. And what do they know about us? And how do we protect ourselves? And we live in a surveillance state. There's a kind of a conversation that's reasonably new. In, in 2000, there wasn't a big conversation about the surveillance state, and there is today. Out of that has come some sort of anxiety about whether what people know about us will be used against us. And that is spilled over into the census. So today we have more concern about the census privacy issues than we had even in, in uh, we, we've always promised, don't worry, we're not going to violate it. We're not going to ever share your data. And that's true. Any Census Bureau 
person who ever revealed anything that they learned would in effect be fined and 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 um, uh, there's really rigorous rules about about protecting the privacy of census data but it's hard to make that plausible to people to start from a higher level of of concern so the census bureau has this year come up with a new technology called differential privacy. I won't describe that technically, but it's a way in which to, to protect the privacy at an even higher level than it has been. The issue is there is a very straightforward trade-off between accuracy and privacy. If you want accuracy, you're going to lose privacy. If you want privacy, you're going to lose accuracy. And so that's just a trade-off. The Census Bureau fine-tunes that the best it can. At what level is it worth having the data, even though there's some risk, and this differential privacy technology really drives that risk down. It's, it's a very sophisticated piece of work, um, and we should be proud of what the Census Bureau has so done So it's the age of uh, hacking online and uh, you know taking advantage of social media and other things to um, create uh, uh, news that is not... You're not worried about that with the census? Well, well, yes, that's a separate issue. Okay. We are certainly worried about, we're not so worried about hacking because we're, we're, we, we understand that. And, and, and a lot of work got done after the 2016 election where we know we were attacked and so forth. And a lot of the, what was learned from that has now migrated to the Census Bureau. And we think they're in pretty good shape. And so what you can't stop is a disinformation campaign. Mm-hmm. And the census, the important thing about the census and important thing about the census, it doesn't last very long. Even though we start the advertising campaign, we say we're going to mail this out. In 2000, the census started my year, and I'm very proud of this. Not that I thought it up, somebody else did. But then it happened again in, in, in 2010. I hope it happens in 2020. The first person to be counted in a census is always in Alaska, uh, and that's in January because you're getting the thaw and it turns to mud and you can't get around. In the winter, you can get around on, on, snow, you know, on, on, the, on the ice and on the snow. But then once it turns to mud and you're on the roads as best you can, it's very hard to get around. So in my year, I had a very smart social media person. And he says, guess what? You're going to go up and count the first person and you're going to get on a dog sled and we're going to have a photograph of you. It's going to be on the front page of the New York Times. He was right. Yeah. It was on well. the front page of a dozen <laughs> newspapers. And then the, the person who did the 2010 did it again. He even had a bigger dog sled than I had. So the census will announce itself. We had our first paid advertisement in 2000 was the, the, the um, Super Bowl. Very expensive, but we thought it was worth it right away. Make a good, strong uh, Super Bowl announcement because you know that everybody's watching the advertisements as much as they watch the game. But the actual census as a thing that you do, you you don't really get the form or the the connection to your uh, internet. It's about the middle of March, and then by second or week at best in April, if you haven't gotten a lot of people, you're in trouble. So you take a disinformation campaign. You can invent in your head a very simple disinformation campaign. Here's one I've invented. Here's something that comes in your mail or over your internet, into your email, and it looks like a census form. And it is a census form. And down at the bottom it says, it's really important. Please cooperate with the census. The country needs you. All the kinds of statements. And it says, don't forget, April 1st is the deadline. Send it in by April 1st. 
and you send that out on April 2nd. A lot of people don't do it on April 1st. They, and and we would lose. And then how are you going to catch up from, from that disinformation campaign? Are the opposite. Or you send one message to the blue states, another message to the red states that says, if you really want more money coming into your state and your schools and so forth and so on, then here's what you should do. And what you're doing is giving them a message which says, which would undermine them getting the money or which would challenge the information campaign that the Census Bureau was sitting out. And you can't tell, you know, it's just flood of stuff coming at you all the time when you open up your email and there it is. So there's a lot of concern about disinformation. Uh, there are very smart people who are already tracking it and they're finding indicators of how that could happen, including by white nationalists. I was just going to ask so, you had an interest yeah. in oh, no, this. Oh, no, absolutely white nationalists who, who would like a census with only counted whites. And it doesn't care about anybody else. And they're not sitting there counting the money that their state or city is going to lose and so forth and so on. And that this, the census belongs to the whites. It belongs to the initial people who inherited and built this country and so forth and so on. And if that goes out and, and, and you're a, a, an Asian or a, and you're, you're frightened anyway, you're going to say, well, OK, you can have it. Uh, so we are worried about that. And it's very hard to know how dangerous that is. We just don't know yet and, and what, what we will be able to do about it. So I got us off topic from 2030, 2040. Yeah. Where yeah. do you go? Right. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's the 2020. Yeah. The one of the things that I say right now uh, when people ask about, well, what's next? I say the 2030 census will look less like the 2020 census than the 2020 census looks like the 1790 census. Wow. The 1790 to 2020 fundamentally, even though we improved it and we're now using the internet, we don't use marshals on horses, uh, we all kinds of new things, but all of it have the same basic underlying principle. Go knock on doors and find out how many people live in this household and put it on a piece of paper and now put it on your iPhone and send it in and we will figure it all out. But the amount of data that now exists about all of us, every household, some of that, much of that is in government records. And uh, it's in IRS records, it's in building, uh, you know, somebody knows how many people live in this loft because we just filed some papers and because we were doing renovations. So the buildings department knows. Um, they know we don't have a child. There's nobody going to school from this household and so forth and so on. So there's a ton of data, enormously important data in the federal and state administrative records. And if that can be used, it's really inexpensive to use that because it's already been collected. Uh, linking them is hard because they have different purposes. Uh, uh, a school system really doesn't have to know how old you are, but it does know want to know your address. It wants to be right. So if you're six years old instead of seven years old, that's not a big deal for the school system. But it really matters if you're in this district or that district. Uh, Social Security really wants to know your age. They don't need to know your address. Yeah. Let me now run back to a basic point that I haven't said very clearly yet. The census is the golden standard for all other data collection, mm. all other data collection, because there's no other standard. The simplest question possible, how many men and women live in the United States? And that's a ratio of 50.1 to 49.9 and so forth and so on. But if you do a sample survey, every once in a while you will come back with answers 
where it's 45 women and 55 men. We know that's wrong. So we adjust that number using the census as the golden standard. The census accuracy levels really matter for all other data collections. And that will be true when you're looking at administrative data. Now, that's before we get to the issue of what kind of data are we going to get from Facebook and from Amazon. This year, I should say, by the way, getting ready for the 2020 census, Google was a major help in, in doing the address file. They have been taking, going up and down streets all over this country, uh, photographing buildings. With those data at hand, the Census Bureau could decide what is a residence and what is not. It's very expensive to knock on every door and say, churches become residencies and residencies become commercial and uh, they burn or they get enlarged. Uh, it's going on constantly. You look at the city, you know, <laughs> every other building's got some structure about it where, where things are being added or subtracted and so forth. The address file in 2020 is already a fundamentally differently constructed address file than we were doing even 10 years ago. I think that's the trajectory we're on. We go out and ask all kinds of people about how much money they spend to do the CPI, to do the consumer price index. That's expensive. Mm -hmm. If you can get it by going and swiping their Amex cards and their Visa cards, then you've got it. Some of that data is held privately but for sale the government can buy it i would put it slightly differently by 2030 the census bureau will be more doing data curation than data collection the data is already out there what they want to do is make sure it's accurate and they will learn how to do that. They're smart people, and they will hire new kinds of statisticians and so forth and so on to actually curate data sets. And when you can bring a data set from Amazon or from Google or from Visa, Walmart, or whatever, to a certain level of accuracy, you can say, this is good enough to use. And especially if you can correct it with another data set. Now, here's the, here's the uh, problem in all this. Essentially, we do not need to take a census. We could have a national registration system. European countries all have national registration systems on the basis of which they then do big sample surveys for things like unemployment or things like uh, transportation or uh, veterans or all the ways that we get other data about other population groups. But the actual baseline is a national registration system. So just inform me what a national registration system means you're born on such and such a day, and there's a record on you. When you're one year old, you are two years old, you had to have a tooth pulled out or a tooth, that goes into that record. When you go to school when you're six, that's in that record. That national registration system mm -hmm. follows you through your life until you die. Mm -hmm. We have 96% of the American people today have a social security number. We have a national registration system. Now, the public, this public is anxious about the national registration system. So that's an issue that has to be discussed and we'll see where it goes. But you could create, so you can create a national registration system out of the extant administrative record data of this country and then take surveys on big things where you want to ask more complicated questions. I can see a, what I would call the national data platform for the country where you're getting updated every day on certain variables like consumer behavior and prices. 
if you're really worried about if you're you're sitting there worried about the economy and you're worried about microeconomics and how fast it's changing and who's making investments and who's not and who's moving and who's not and so forth you don't want to wait 10 years you want that data now and that's the 21st century so it would be an active live active live constantly updated we know how to do that already doing a lot of economic data that way and so we've got to do immigration data that way and this debate we're having about immigration is based upon lousy data they're all criminals or they're none of our criminals or whatever it's not very good data it's possible to get good data on immigration now that is a version of a surveillance state and if you don't believe that you can trust the state you're going to fight it the dutch had very good records on where the jews lived in 1939 mm. and when the nazis got to amsterdam and rotterdam and so forth they got a hold of those data and they found the jews fast and they took them away so i can see why people say well but wait a minute if you're in islam in this country today you do not want the government to have that much data about you uh, because you'll have ISIS uh, uh, knocking on your door. Yeah. At one level, I'm very confident. I'm a social scientist. I understand that this all will function. And I can see us having a powerful information base, which allows us to be create social justice and to uh, create economic growth and to do all the valuable things that the candidates now are, are, are hollering about, of course. But on the other hand, you can't do that if you don't have trust. And if the population doesn't trust the state, the government, then we're in a hole. We will be an inefficient country in, in terms of the things that would would be valuable to have in place. Um, so I've wanted to ask you a little bit about being the director of the census, what that's like, and then who runs the census? How does it actually function? Who, what's an enumerator? You've made a reference to them, but then who are the folks that are, you know, in D.C. making sure that these numbers are accurate and wh what are their backgrounds? And yeah. you know. There's a very large number of permanent employees, of course, at the Census Bureau in several thousands because they're not doing the in the non-decennial years. They're out collecting data. Mm -hmm. They're doing the Bureau of Labor Statistics gives you labor statistics. The Census Bureau collected the data in cooperation with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And there's a lot of that. So the Census Bureau is a data collection operation. And I said a minute ago, I hope increasingly a data curation for other agencies of, 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 of government. So we've got a permanent staff that knows how to do that. And they really care about it. They don't get paid very well compared to what they could be paid if they were in the private sector. So I asked them when I first got there, I said, well, I know what we're paying you, and I know what you could make if you went and worked for you know, Amazon or whatever. And he says, "It's there's no data set like this. They're just you get you you just are proud to be part of something, and it is so big that it is exciting to work on a big data set that can govern the country. Then you have this surge of new people you need to be enumerators during the census taking itself. That's only every ten years. There are people for whom." This is what they always do every 10 years. They can't wait for it. They love it. And I'll give you one anecdote. Uh, this is someone in Southern California. She um, has been enumerating for a long time. And she loves doing it. Just fun. She knocks on the door. Uh, first, there's no answer. She knocks and knocks. And finally, someone comes to the door. And he, he says, I know that you are from the census. I am not going to answer your question. If you come back, see this hose, big, huge garden hose. You're going to be really wet. Don't do it. So she says, oh, sorry. Okay. 
Next morning, she goes back. She knocks on the door. He comes. She's standing there with an umbrella and a raincoat. <laughs> and he says, okay. <laughs> uh, or another one where someone says, I would love to do this. I'm just very busy. I don't have time. I'm really sorry. And you know, I try to find me later, but I got too much to do. And she says, well, what's your job? Well, I'm a, hair I'm a hairdresser. And I'm saying, okay, fine. The next day, this woman, this hairdresser, who didn't have time, is dressing hair. And she made an appointment. Wow. And so she asked the questions while she's sitting in the hairdresser. Yeah. So people really care about it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's marvelous to be part of that. They're politically naive. The Census Bureau has three political appointees out of a out of eventually a uh, hundred thousand uh, thousands of, of employees during the census three the director the head of of the liaison to governorships and cities and so forth there's a unit that just cooperates and has to because they they get money they get the resources and they get the fun, the data and so forth and, so on. and then the the pr person the public relations a media person our political appointees everybody else is a civil servant and how big is this uh, permanent staff about well i'm now going to have to guess but, but in my year it was about five or six thousand and but then it went up to almost a million during when you had the enumerators and i suspect it's that large and larger today uh, but I, I don't have that number yeah. in my head. In your mind, what is the most unexpected thing you've ever learned from census data? I think I would go back to, because the undercount matters, it, it, it's the foundation of a certain kind of social justice. Put it this way, if the census only counted 50% of the people, you would say, that's a lousy census. But I said, but guess what? They counted 50% of every block in the country, exactly the same number. The census would work just as well because it's all proportional. You get seats and you get money. I said there's sometimes a threshold number, but for the most part, it's proportionality. And when I realized the importance of proportionality and therefore the critical importance of the undercount and overcount from the point of view of social justice, I, I just, it's something clicked. Mm -hmm. I said, you have to fix that problem. You, even though it's only 2 or 3%, that's a lot of money if, if there's uh, uh, $15 trillion floating around. So fire departments that need that money, the emergency work and so forth, you suddenly take off 2 or 3% of their budget and that's, that, that hurts. Uh, and you give it to somebody else so they didn't even need it. So I, I guess what I really, what struck me is really critical is why accuracy matters. People are saying, why can't you have just a good enough census? It would be a lot less expensive. You could have a good enough census if the government allow you to estimate the difference between the good enough and what you think would be accurate. But the ruling that happened in the 2000 census about dual system estimation is that you could not use sampling theory. Mm. Sampling theory, samples can be more accurate than enumerations. It's really hard to count everything of everything but if i had big jars here full of, of different colors of, of marbles and i drew samples from them my sample would be true within two or three per you know within an error term um, but if you just sort of try to count everything you get tired you're going to take you all afternoon sooner or later you're going to start making mistakes it's really hard to get a fully accurate count but the more that the government will tolerate the use of really good statistical technologies that 
we can do. This, this statistician of this country getting smarter and smarter with all this AI conversation and so forth. You see this. Um, we, we, can, we can get a good enough census without knocking on every door. In fact, a better census by by estimating the what you're missing both over and undercount. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question. But the proportionality of it is really where social justice and accuracy comes in. And if you are running a water system and you really want to know how many people you're going to be drawing from that water system, you want a good count. And if you over undercount, you mis misuse your resources. I want to switch topics from the census and talk a little bit more about your own career and all the various scholarship and research that you've delved into aside from census data. You began as a uh, political scientist. So how does one study uh, political leadership and be a political scientist, become the director of the census? Well, I'll make this very short. Uh, yes, my dissertation was on, on elite theory and political leadership. That got me my PhD. That then got me my first job, which was at the University of, of Chicago. And after a few years at the University of Chicago, where I'm doing this kind of standard political science uh, research, I'm asked to direct the NORC, which was then called the National Opinion Research Center. It's a Chicago, University of Chicago uh, managed survey research contract house. It does a lot of work for the government. Its budget today is, when I took it over, it was about four or five million dollars. Its budget today is 220 million dollars a year. It's a big, important operation, still at the University of Chicago. Doing that changed my career because I sort of left political science for this much broader social science operation. And I became really interested in the social sciences themselves, not just the data collection and sample surveys and so forth, but the social sciences. And so I did other kinds of things. I left the academy. For, I was 15 years there. And then I went to the Rockefeller Foundation where I ran agriculture, population, health programs uh, around the world. But using the tools that I had taken from that, and so that was a different kind of chapter of my life uh, that I was president of the Social Science Research Council and so forth and so on. So to your question, I got a call. I was president of the Social Science Research Council at the time. I got a call from somebody that said, I'm from the, I'm from the Department of Commerce and I have your name from a friend of mine who's a Harvard professor and with whom I'd co-written and I knew very well. And got a call, and he, he said, I should ask you, and I, he, 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 this Harvard professor, had been the professor of the person now making this call, and he was working at the Department of Commerce, and his job was to worry about the census. And he said, I should call you about people who could be the director of the Census Bureau. And I says, well, okay. And I gave him two or three names of people I thought would be really quite good at And he says, what about yourself? And I said, what? And he says, well, what about yourself? I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, didn't know to, I didn't know how to think about it. So I said, I, 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 let me think about it. And I came home and said, I got this odd call to my wife. And she said, oh, you got to do that. It's too much fun. It's just too different. And I said, well, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, so I said, I called the next day and said, yes. And I was the only, at the time, the only candidate. They, of course, interviewed me and checked me out. The reason they wanted me is this battle about dual system estimation was already in play. And 
statisticians were on two different sides of it. The Berkeley statisticians, for, for, for example, thought it wasn't going to work. The good statisticians down at Carnegie Mellon were very fierce about doing it. But I had no reputation about it. I had a reputation as a good social scientist who understand numbers from NORC and so forth. But I had no position on that. And so they were looking for somebody who could get selected, yeah. who, would, who would get through the, the, the congressional hearing. I was just going to ask you about that. What was the congressional hearing like? Oh, it was marvelous. Two things. One, there was preparation, a lot of preparation. Uh, and the, just before the, the confirmation hearing, you have a, a trial run, and there are 15, 20 people in the room throwing questions at you. And I had done my homework. Was I, it controversial I, at this point? I mean, was this... It, yeah, it, this it, issue was controversial. Okay. But I was protected from that. I mean, I wasn't going to get whammed with that problem. Why did you say that you could do dual system estimation or whatever? People throwing questions and I'm answering. And then somebody slips in and sits down at the back and she's sort of reading her iPad or whatever she was doing, not paying much attention and sitting there. And people hadn't noticed her. And then she said, Prud, you don't get it. The room got deathly silent. Everybody turned and said, so that's somebody important. And I said, well, what do you mean I don't get it? I, you just heard me. I just answered the question exactly what, what was wrong with my answer. She said, your job is not to get an A+. Plus. Your job is to get a B-. minus. We want you confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> and you aren't smarter than those people asking you questions. They don't want to be told that you're smarter than they are. They want to be told that when you have a problem, you're going to come and ask them how to fix it. Uh, very smart wanted to keep the White House as far away from the census as possible. Mm -hmm. I didn't want uh, me to be getting kudos from Bill Clinton, and they were very careful about that because the census was politicized over this mm -hmm. technology, this mm -hmm. dual system estimation uh, thing, and uh, and protected me from mayors who wanted certain kinds of uh, things. I had mayors call and holler at me because I wasn't spending enough money in their city and mm -hmm. so forth, and she protected me from all of that. She said, your job is to just do the best census you can and we will we will protect you. It turns out I testified 25 times in less than two years. They would have me down there all of the time because the Republicans had taken over the uh, the House. The House, by the way, the, the House of Representatives really cares about the census. The Senate doesn't because the Senate, there's no stakes. I mean, there's stakes for their state, but they're not going to get a bigger or smaller, but the, the House really does worry about the census. And the House Oversight Committee is always much, much more active uh, uh, than this. And I did two or three Senate uh, hearings. I, I, so I will, I will just finish by saying that I became enormously, in my small period of time, in the sense of itself, uh, I, I became connected to it in a way that, uh, so now that, that 20 years later, in effect, there's just a lot of noise, a lot of noise out there and concern out there I, I'm working very hard on the census. I, I'm, my, my university understands they pay my salary to do a lot of work on the census, pro bono, of course. I don't charge for anything. But I argue and I put, I've created something called Article 1. It's a 501c3 with some other people, not by myself, but just a very small number of us, which then raise some money in order to do some work that the Census Bureau itself cannot do. Uh, survey work. We've got a big survey out into the field right now where we're learning something about how different, very specific population groups are responding or won't respond to the census. So we can feed that information back into the, um, in fact, it's press releases 
tomorrow. Okay. We're going to announce yeah. Article yeah. 1. Yeah. So I'm just doing a lot of work. Uh, I'm on a different uh, small group of people who are looking at the 2030 design. How do you think, how, how are we going to do, what do we do going forward with the conversation we had earlier? So I've never left it. I, I expected to. I do other kinds of things as well. But I believe so deeply in it. I believe you cannot have a good democracy without good numbers. I believe we ought to hold our government to account where it says it's producing X, Y, or Z, and you sort of go look at the numbers. It doesn't look like it to me. More jobs here are more protection of resources there or whatever it is. You, you've got to have some background, some number, some estimate about how accurate that claim is. And I don't care who's making it. And the, the Democrats make big claims as well. No, that uh, phrase, uh, you can't have a good democracy without good numbers, is a great way to... Yeah, you just can't. And uh, and so I, I would like in my own life or career, and sooner later I will stop this kind of thing, I'm getting old. <laughs> um, long answer to you, but uh, it, it became part of my life, uh, the Census Bureau. I, I know people and you know, we're, the old crowd is moving out, of course. I'm still on the board of NORC, which is the, one of the most important not-for-profit, uh, university-based survey contract houses in the country, if not the most important. And that's fantastic to work with them because they're really smart. Uh, as I say, when I did it, when I was its director at $4 million, it's <laughs> right. $220 million. You can imagine how different it is yeah. from, from from those early days. Well, there are two other questions that, that I wanted to ask. and, and you Talking about your career reminded me of them. The, the first was that original research on political leadership, because that's something else that is very much in our kind of public discussion today about um, the partisanship, but also uh, what good political leadership looks like in the 21st century. Um, do we have it? Can we have it in this type of environment? So I, I don't know if you can think back on your, your earlier research and, and if it has any insights for us today. Well, I'm going to give you an answer to your question, and a fair enough answer. I don't think it's usable, by the way, in this, but I'll give it to you exactly. When I got my PhD, the political sciences were beginning, political science beginning to shift from what had been an historical deep connection to um, uh, political history and, and political theory and so forth into an empirical uh, quantitative science. And there were four or five topics that were major topics, one of which was leadership, recruitment, uh, elite theory, and so forth. Another was political socialization, how do kids learn about politics and therefore have a certain kind of attitude. Uh, another one, of course, was uh, electoral behavior. And uh, another was legislative behavior. And what happened was electoral behavior created a very important center of gravity at the University of Michigan about electoral behavior and got a very substantial amount of money from the National Science Foundation to study elections. And the rest of the stuff faded away. There is no sustained study of political recruitment, uh, on which my dissertation in the first book would have been a component. It's still there. I don't know if anybody reads it. There is no expertise around political recruitment. And there is no expertise around political socialization. And there's much less, there's still expertise around legislative behavior, but not as much as there was even then. Because the space got consumed by the study of the election, electorate itself. And it's a powerful, impressive study. They get a huge grant every year from the National Science Foundation. But actually, from a point of view of political science, 
whole sectors that we should have been studying, we have not been studying for the last 20 years. And, uh, well, no, 20, 50 years. Uh, this all starts in the 18, 1970s. So that's that's the real answer, yeah. which is not, yeah. it's not for this, this yeah. purpose. But to try to give you an answer to the question that, you know, is that I, I guess I would say that the whole process by which we select leaders, not just elect them, but select them and why they put themselves forward, needs serious attention by our by by the social sciences and i would love to see that attention being uh, being directed to those kinds of questions when i did my dissertation one of the most important things i discovered when it was obvious once you discovered it the number of people who go into politics because their parent their fathers were in politics is huge very high percentage 30 40 percent of the people you see yeah, out there. all these yeah. The dynasties yeah, yeah all these dynasties then yeah, you see yeah, the yeah. real dynasties yeah, the bush yeah. administration yeah. the clintons and so forth and so on and there's talk about whether the trump kids are going to want to run for office or not right well you know lots of kids inherit their their parents yeah. uh, businesses <laughs> and and so forth so it makes sense but is that still true and if it is true what does it mean that you could actually it, it's like the whole problem of inheritance you suddenly can inherit power uh, yeah. uh, as well as money. That's worrisome. It's just something the founders feared. Yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. But we don't know. There's the, the systematic data on what we used to call elite theory doesn't, doesn't exist today. One of our other podcasts is looking at science education today and ways to improve scientific knowledge and communicating to children and to teachers the work that science does. And I know that some of your more recent research has looked at how science can communicate better with policymakers. So I don't know if you want to say anything about you know, you know the ways that the ways that scientists science and scientific data is used today and how it could be improved. So our the vocabulary that the country uses right now in its legislative process and so forth is given to it by the social sciences. Unintended consequences, uh, moral hazard, cost benefit analysis, uh, GDP. GDP is a creation of the social sciences of, of economics. We get no credit for it because it's common sense. It, uh, there's a great historian of science named Bob Burton who, who called this the obliteration by incorporation. He had a sort of very small little meaning attached to that. But I use that, that argument in this thing I just mentioned, this article. We've had a lot of obliteration by incorporation. And so we don't get credit and, and I think that's because the social sciences aren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. And they're whining that, oh, well, they don't love us enough. Uh, we do all of this great work, but why don't they pay attention to us? Well, we ought to be studying why they don't pay attention to us. It's our job. We're social scientists. And instead, we're telling the STEM sciences how to communicate their science, but we're not telling ourselves how to communicate our science. So that's a long answer yeah, to you. That's great. And I, one last question that came to mind as you were speaking, which is, can you predict today what is the kind of cutting edge social science that has not yet been incorporated, but in 20, 30, 40 years will be part of our natural language that everyone will get? It'll be slightly abstract what I'm about to say. The boundary between the technical and the social is a whole field of research, huge, big field of research. We've got pieces of it already. But that's the growth field for the social sciences. It's not standalone social behavior, social structures. It's how the technology is, do what it's doing to our society and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the other side of that, the morality of that, we're going to have to do with the human. We're not doing it. The humanists know how to talk about it. The human, I'll put it this way. Science 
is basically about truth and falsity. Then you have to take the second step, which is, but is it practical? Is it used? So that's the difference between usable and not usable. So you can have knowledge that's not really usable. I don't think you can have much knowledge that's not usable because somebody will find a use. But fundamentally, you've got that. And then you've got the issue of, is it right and wrong? So the social sciences, I think, have to pivot substantially from their kind of comfort zone talking to themselves about their science to engaging the technical stuff and engaging the, the moral stuff. And that will create a new kind of social science. Now, that's a big, audacious kind of statement, but I, I'm, I think I'm right. I want to thank the, the honorable <laughs> Ken Pruitt for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Brenna Holland and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. <laughs> <laughs>